You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit. In your kind and generous love, you have revealed yourself to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, in all of Scripture bears witness to Him. We pray now that you would illumine the reading and preaching of your Word, that we would be those who don't just read it and walk away unchanged, but that we would be those who respond to your Word of grace with obedience and with love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning again. I'm really excited to welcome our guest preacher this morning, Chris Wright. Chris has been here for our missions weekend Um, and just had some wonderful teaching for us yesterday um, that I hope that you'll either go back to and listen to later or hear from somebody else. Um, Chris is a, well, let me tell you a little bit about him. He was a missionary in India for a while, and then he was principal of All Nations Christian College in the UK. Um, He, for the last 20 years, has been the International Ministries Director of the Langham Partnership International, which is a ministry that was founded by my mentor, John Stott, um, to support, equip, and empower the global church, especially the church in the poorest parts of the world. Um, Chris is an author. He's a pastor in the Anglican church. Um, He's an amazing scholar of mission, and also his PhD is in the Old Testament. Um, So if you want to talk about Deuteronomy, he's a guy to talk to. Um, And Chris has been a a good friend of mine for over 20 years since we met through John Stott, um, and we are really, really privileged to have him be with us today. Um, So I'm going to read our scripture today. uh, He's just going to continue on in our series. We've been looking at the book of Mark, looking at the way of Jesus, asking that the way of Jesus, that his way might become our way as he calls us to follow him. So today we're looking at this remarkable story in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 32. It comes right after what is sometimes called the transfiguration, where Jesus went up on the mountain and he was revealed in all his glory to three of his disciples, and he appeared there with Elijah and Moses. And this is just when they are coming down from the mountain. So hear God's word, Mark chapter 9. I'm reading from the ESV version. And when they came down to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And Jesus answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to Jesus, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. 
And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he was saying and they were afraid to ask him. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody, and thank you so much, Corey, for that warm welcome, all the nice things he said about me. Um, most important thing to say is that I'm a sinner saved by grace, like the rest of us here together, so uh, that's the truth as well. But it is good to be with you here at Third. Uh, it's been a while since I was first invited. It's taken a few years to actually make it possible, uh, but here we are, and it's a joy. Let me bring you greetings, not only from my wife, Liz, who's back in London, but from our home church, All Souls Church, Langham Place. Some of you might have visited there if you've been through London. It was, of course, the church where John Stott was, the rector and then rector emeritus for many years, about half a century. Uh, and, of course, where uh, Corey first worked for John and then got to know me. And so it's a lovely friendship that has developed because of that. And that also, is, as Corey was saying, is uh, what I now work for, the Langham Partnership, and uh, Larry Baldbeck, my colleague, is here with Langham, and there's a, dis a display and some books and uh, magazines and things in the fellowship hall that you can go to afterwards and take a look and uh, be there and see what we do. So let's turn now to this uh, story that um, Corey has just read to us from Mark chapter 9. It was a pleasure for me, actually, to, when Corey suggested that I simply stick with the series that you're doing on, on Mark's gospel, because this is a wonderful story. You need to be careful when you're coming down a mountain because usually it's harder than going up. You've possibly found that in your vacations. And Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, have just had that mountaintop experience on that mountain of transfiguration there in the first half of chapter 9. And indeed, as we read there, uh, they met with Moses and Elijah and Jesus in his glory that they saw. And interestingly, for Moses and Elijah, when they had a mountaintop experience with God, they came down to something very different. Moses, you remember, uh, met with the presence of God on Mount Sinai and then had to come down the mountain to the apostasy and idolatry of the golden calf. Elijah had demonstrated the power of God on Mount Carmel. And then when he came down, he was, received death threats from Jezebel and fell into suicidal depression himself. So here is Jesus who's been revealed in all his glory as the Son of God on the Mount of Transfiguration. But now, a man like us, as he's incarnate, he comes back down the valley. Conflict and unbelief and opposition and sickness and Satan. This is the reality that Jesus confronts. It's not particularly surprising, mind you, because the last time he heard his father's voice, which was at his baptism, immediately after that, he went into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. So here he comes down, having heard the Father's voice, and again he's into this battle 
uh, there in, in this story. Now, I asked Corey to read on to that last little bit at, uh, at verse 32 because one of the problems with our Bibles in English sometimes is that they put in paragraph divisions and little headings and things that split up the text. And we need to see what Mark is doing here is that he puts this story about the healing of this boy in between two almost identical references to Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, and it's almost as if the whole meaning of this little story is to be seen in the light of that great battle that Jesus was going to be engaged in with sin and sickness and Satan, and which will occupy the last third of Mark's gospel, the story of his passion and death and resurrection. And so actually in this story, and at one point, Mark will spring on us this connection and help us to see it as a little surprise. But we'll get there in a moment. Let's join the opening scene. Can you see it there in verses 14 and 15? I hope you've been able to keep your Bible open there at that, uh, at that passage. I think it's page 1568 uh, if you're using the church Bible, which of course is the NIV. Uh, Corey read from the ESV for a reason that is very clear in a moment. But we've got the NIV. That's what I've got in front of me here. So verse 14 and 15, Jesus comes. There's this crowd of people around the other nine disciples while Peter, James, and John have been up the mountain with Jesus. And we find that there's a big argument going on. And there are scribes present. Now, the scribes were the authorized teachers of the law of Moses. They were the guardians of public orthodoxy. They were the sort of doctrine police uh, of the people of that day. And the argument suggests that they were really challenging these disciples. They were questioning them about what was happening, which seemed to be a, a failed exorcism attempt. So they're probably saying, why are you doing this? On what authority are you doing this? But they're also probably questioning the disciples about Jesus. Now he's away that they can, uh, an opportunity to check out his followers when Jesus wasn't around. And so it's a situation that Jesus is coming into, which has elements of threat and argument and so on, uh, and even the possible charge, which would have been a very serious charge, that Jesus was actually a false prophet, which would have uh, led to his death. And then all of a sudden, verse 15, Jesus walks up. Uh, much to everybody's surprise, well, probably the relief of the disciples that Jesus is back, uh, and all the crowd are astonished. Hey, we were just talking about you, and here he is, uh, suddenly arrived. And Jesus takes control. You can see there in verse 16, he says, uh, and the, the force of his words are, what are you interrogating them about? It's not just, what are you talking about? He's aware that there's a real challenge going on here. And so the other central figure in the story in verse 17 speaks up. Uh, he is the distraught father of a very sick child. And I must say, with the baptism, seeing fathers and mothers with children is such a joy. But we also know how painful it is and how grievous it is when children are sick. And his words to Jesus there in verse 17 and 18, can you see them? They combine a number of things. First of all, there's respect. He says, teacher. He addresses Jesus with respect. There's also a sense of hope that he had. He said, I brought my son to you, but you weren't here. Uh, is somehow that feeling. He also has spiritual perception because he recognizes that there's something demonic even in the midst of this physical illness. And that's interesting because it's not as if uh, they thought that every sickness was demonic because they, they, they knew the difference. Matthew makes it clear, for example, that Jesus was able to heal those who had mental illness 
as well as those who had demon possession. They didn't confuse these. They knew that there was a difference. And it seems that this boy, uh, from the description is given, was subject to what we would in our day probably call very serious epileptic fits. Uh, but the, the, the father discerns something else there, uh, this spirit that has made him deaf and dumb. And of course, as well as all of those things, there's frustration. He said, I brought him to you, uh, you weren't here, and your disciples aren't much good really, are they? They weren't strong enough, he says, to drive the spirit out. So here is then Jesus landing right back into the battle zone. There's not only this ugly standoff between his disciples and these religious thought police uh, of the day, there's also this spiritual arm wrestling match going on between his disciples and a demon. And it's pretty obvious who's getting the worst of it up to this point, and it's the disciples. So there we are. Uh, the disciples can't drive out this evil spirit. And we might wonder why. What, what's the problem? Because earlier on in the gospel, uh, Jesus had sent them out to do exactly that. In chapter 6, calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. So they went out and they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people. So why can't they do it here? One answer might be, possibly, that they'd forgotten what Jesus also told them to do in chapter 6. They went out and preached that people should repent. Had they left that piece out? Had this turned from being a, a, a proclamation of the kingdom of God and a calling people to repentance and faith into perhaps something of a sort of roadshow for the disciples? Or was it, as Jesus exclaims in verse 19, basically a lack of faith? There was something of, the, of an unbelief that wasn't really at work here. Or a lack of prayer, as she mentions in verse 29. But whatever it is, Jesus' outburst, can you see it there in verse 19? Jesus, he says, you unbelieving, faithless generation. He says, how long have I got to be with you before you will believe? And this is remarkable because, you see, all through Jesus' ministry, Mark makes it very clear, Jesus seems to be confronted with this wall of hostility and rejection and unbelief, which, as a human being, in his humanity, he finds surprising. He, he, he really can't take it in. It's baffling. It's exasperating. It's frustrating. We know that at several times. You perhaps noticed this as you've been working in Mark's gospel. Uh, in chapter 3, when he had healed a man there uh, with the uh, shriveled hand, we read that Jesus looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. That was Jesus in chapter 3. In chapter 6, we read that Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith in his own hometown because he said he couldn't do many miracles there. Well, except to lay his hand on a few sick people and heal them. That would have been good enough. But he probably wanted to do more, and he couldn't because of their lack of faith. And so what's happening here is this, that this Son of God, because the last time we've met Jesus, he's up on that Mount of Transfiguration, and he's heard the voice of his Father, this is my beloved Son. But now the Son of God is experiencing what God himself had endured for centuries with the Old Testament people of Israel. What Jesus says here, how long, how long, is very similar to what uh, God says through Isaiah in chapter 65, Isaiah, where God says, All day long I have held out my hands to this obstinate people who walk in ways that are not good. 
people who continually provoke me to my very face. So God's patience had been stretched for centuries by the people of Israel, and now that unbelief of Old Testament Israel is persisting into the New Testament Gospels and confronting Jesus himself, certainly in the crowds, certainly among the scribes and the Jewish leaders, and possibly even among his own disciples. Jesus seems to be almost swimming in the glue of unbelief, which is so frustrating and exasperating for him. But notice, the way Mark here, as soon as he's presented the Father and the Son, immediately switches our focus back to Jesus himself, because that's what he's doing all the way through the gospel, is that he's really raising this question, who is this Jesus, and what can or can't he do? And so in verses 20 and 21, the real confrontation begins. They bring the boy uh, to Jesus, and the, the demon, the spirit, as it were, in the presence of Jesus himself, now tries on one last big show of defiance and arrogance, as if to say, hey, look what I can do with this wretched human being here. And he throws him to the ground, convulsing and foaming and so on. And then Jesus has a little conversation with the Father in verse 21, which interestingly, only Mark records. Uh, Matthew and Luke in their gospels just leave that little bit out and sort of get on with the story. And this is one piece of evidence why it does seem to me very convincing that Mark wrote his gospel on the memoirs and memories, eyewitness of Peter, which uh, we're told by one of the early fathers that Mark wrote his gospel in Rome on the memories of Peter because Peter was here and he heard this. And so Jesus asks, you know, how long has this been going on? How long has he been like this? And the father answers, well, ever since he was a little child and very often. And not only that it, this happens often, but it's, it's happening in a way that's going to destroy him. It's not just that he has a, a fit somewhere where, you know, we're out, but wherever the child is near, maybe a well, he, he's almost falling in. Or when he's beside the fire where my wife is cooking and he falls into the fire. It's as if this demon is out to slay my son which of course is exactly what Satan wants to do because Satan is the destroyer. He hates God and he hates human beings who are made in the image of God. And so he is the destroying force and he doesn't make any exemption for little children. No mitigating circumstances, no mercy. It's just deadly and destructive. And he says, that's what this is suffering of my boy. And then in the second half of verse 22, the man says, the father says to Jesus, but if there's anything you can do, then have pity on us. Your disciples weren't much good, were they? But maybe you can do something better. And so Jesus makes his classic reply there in verse 23. It's, uh, I don't know whether it was a twinkle in his eye or not, or uh, a look possibly of, of, of rebuke or of question of Jesus. If you can, what's this if you can? Anything, all things are possible. All things are can to the one who believes. So what did Jesus mean by that? Is Jesus saying, what do you mean, if I can? Of course I can. I've got all the faith I need to heal your son. You know, anything is possible for top-class believers like me. Is that, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Or is he saying, and this is the way this verse is sometimes misinterpreted, that anybody can do anything so long as they've got enough faith. The sort of Disney world, you know, just believe in yourself and you can be anything. No, it's very clear from the gospel that the object of believe, whoever believes, is in me. It's, it's the belief in Christ 
from verse 19, which is what he's talking about. And the all things that Jesus is talking about is all the things that God has made possible through the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his salvation. As in chapter 10, verse 27, when Jesus says something very similar, uh, where the question was raised, who then can be saved uh, if even a rich man doesn't get saved? And Jesus, all things are possible, even for rich people to be saved. So it's talking about that and salvation. But can you see the way in which, very cleverly, Jesus is reversing the challenge of the Father's question, bouncing it back at him. The Father says, can you do anything if you can do anything? And the Father, Jesus' answer is, you know, well, what's this can you? The issue here, my friend, is not with me, but with you. The question is not, can I do it, but can you believe it? The issue is not Jesus' ability, but the man's faith. The, the, the thing is being cast back. Or to put it another way around, what's really being tested here? Who's on trial here? You see, in this situation, the scribes were putting the disciples to the test as far as their authority to drive out demons was concerned. And in a sense, the Father is putting Jesus to the test as far as his ability to cast out demons was concerned. But Jesus isn't having any of this. Jesus deflects this. Jesus isn't going to, as it were, just heal somebody in order just to prove a point, as it were. Uh, he's got plenty of faith. He can heal everybody. He's not going to do this simply to satisfy the skepticism of the scribes or the curiosity of the crowds. No, what Jesus is recognizing in this whole situation is unbelief. That's what he says in verse 19. That's the point of that surprising outburst of Jesus. And so what he is trying to do here is to challenge that unbelief and to evoke and call for and generate faith, saving faith, healing faith. And so he puts the Father, in a sense, on the spot, directly in his eyes with this virtual rebuke. What do you mean, if you can? And then with this incredible, stunning, wide-open door, all things are possible to the one who believes in me. And so that's Jesus' classic challenge. And then comes the Father's classic response. He yells, he screams at the top of his voice. The word that's used in verse 24 uh, in our enemies, he exclaims, it's the same word as the Spirit in verse 26. The Spirit shrieked, yelled. So the Father, you see, in, in the midst, in a sense, above all the argument and the interrogation and the noise of the crowd and the excitement, the man lifts up his voice with all the power and all the longing of a lifetime of grief for his son. He says, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And that really was all Jesus wanted to hear at that point. But it raises the question in our minds, doesn't it? What did he mean? How are we supposed to understand those words? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Many people find that particular verse something of a, a liberating thought because it, it's saying that you know, faith in Christ, being a believer, doesn't mean that you have to have clarity on every aspect of every doctrine of the Christian faith. It's, it's as if to say, yeah, I do believe, but... You know, there are still some things I'm not entirely sure about that I can't explain, that I don't really understand. So, Lord, accept my faith and 
help me with areas where I'm not sure really what I believe. Well, I think there is some truth in that because faith needs to be humble. It needs to be honest. It shouldn't be arrogant and that sort of attitude. Yeah, I've got it all sewn up, you know, I'm top-class believer. But I don't think that's what's going on here. This man is not being asked to give his mental assent to a whole list of doctrinal statements. You know, you believe this, this, this. He's not saying, well, yeah, I've got all those but can't quite manage. No, I don't think that's what's happening here. This is a cry from the heart, not from the head. This is coming from the guts, not from the gray cells, as you might say. This is a cry for help. Another way in which this verse is sometimes interpreted and, and, and the impression is given that, and I think it's sort of reflected even in the NIV in a way which I'm not terribly happy with, I have to say, which translates this, Lord, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Which isn't actually what he said. His words are inserted there. As if the man were somehow asking Jesus to help him crank up a bit more faith, you know. Lord, I know I need to have enough faith for you to work this miracle, or that I need to have enough faith to make me deserve your healing, so that faith becomes a kind of something that you have to have in order to make you worthy enough for Jesus to do something for you. And of course, that's the precise opposite of the gospel, as Corey was reminding us from one of our early songs, that it's the mercy of Jesus alone, not anything we bring to him. And that idea that somehow you need to crank up enough faith or have the right kind of faith then leads to a pretty terrible pastoral reality when some people do pray for things and don't receive the answer they want and or the healing doesn't come and then they think that, or they're told that it's their own fault. It's because you didn't have enough faith or your faith is not good enough or something like that, which of course is theologically and pastorally very cruel. So actually, I... I wish that the NIV had left these words the way they are, not help me overcome my unbelief, but exactly the way the old King James Version put it, as I learned as a child, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. You see, this is a cry for help, as I've said several times already. It's a cry for help, like somebody who's drowning. And you see, when you're drowning, it's not time for swimming lessons. And, and, and when the, the lifeguard comes to save you, you don't say, well, excuse me, uh, could you please help me overcome my inability to swim? You know? That's the whole point. I'm drowning. I need you to save me. And I think that's what's coming out of the heart of this man. Save me, I believe, because I can't swim. And so there's a sense in which the response of this man to Jesus is an acceptance of Jesus' words in verse 19, that he realizes that what Jesus had said about the crowd, that there was unbelief there, he also accepts, in a sense, Jesus' rebuke of himself, what do you mean, if I can, uh, in his faith, and it's as if he's saying, Lord, okay, I know, I know I'm no better than all these others who don't really believe, but I come to you, I do believe in you, I beg you for help, please help me as I am in this agony of belief and unbelief, of faith and doubt. Please accept me. Please help me. Please answer me. And you see, that's the kind of humble, defenseless faith that Jesus responds to. It doesn't come with any religious claims 
like the religious authorities. It doesn't come with any sort of pretense. It's just desperately honest and desperately trusting. And actually, that's the kind of faith with which the Christian faith begins, isn't it? When you first become a believer and you sort of stumble and stammer out of this sea of unbelief, you're, Lord, okay, I do, I believe you. This stuff I don't believe, I believe you, I trust you. But it's also the kind of faith, I think, that the Christian life needs to go on with. In fact, I would say that this prayer, I don't do this myself, but I'm reminding myself of it, this would be a good prayer to start every day, wouldn't it? You start, Lord, yes, I'm a believer. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Because there's still areas of my life that I know are not really being lived in true faith in your sovereignty. So, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so Jesus responds quickly, decisively. There we have it in verse 25, 26, 27. Uh, he rebukes the Spirit. He drives the Spirit out. And at last, Mark comes to the moment really he's been leading up to here, I think. Ever since that conversation on the way down from the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus had told the disciples about how he was going to die and rise again, and they said, what, what's he talking about, this rising again? We don't understand that. Um, and now here is the demon has been driven out, and Mark says very clearly that the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. He looked as good as dead. And then literally what Mark says is, Jesus took his hand, raised him up, and he arose. He arose. He arose. Get it? He arose. Anaste. It's exactly the same word as Mark has used earlier in chapter 9 and again in verse 31 about the resurrection of Jesus. He arose. He rose up from the dead. Exactly the same word uh, as Mark had used back in the story of Jairus' daughter, do you remember, who actually was dead. And Jesus, we read in chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus raised her up and she arose. And so I think there's no doubt here that Mark wants us to see this connection. That, that, that this is, in a sense, that this little story that he puts in here is a kind of mini picture. It's a microcosm, as it were, of that great battle that was to come at the end of his gospel. Here is a little cameo of death and resurrection. So that Jesus' victory over one demon that results in the salvation of the life of this one boy is a glimpse. It's just one example of that ultimate victory over Satan and all the hosts of hell that Jesus would accomplish at the cross, triumphing over them there and bringing life and salvation and immortality to life for all those who will believe in him as the gospel will produce and, and, and proclaim. And so to make that very clear, that I think is why Mark goes immediately on from the end of that story to conclude with Jesus teaching his disciples again in verse 13, 32, that that was what lay ahead, the passion of Christ, his suffering and his death and his rising again. And Mark wants us to see that what's to come in the light of this story of a boy who was as good as dead, and he arises to life. Well, Mark concludes, and so must we. What have we learned? Well, I'm sure we've learned something more as you've been learning all the way through this journey with Mark, something more about the identity of Jesus. Uh, Mark has already several times shown that he has power over the demons and Satan and all his hosts, but he's also now showing us that that 
victory of Jesus is a victory which has to go through the valley of suffering and death to resurrection and glory. And what about ourselves? Well, perhaps we need to learn with the disciples at this moment that the way of discipleship and the way of ministry within discipleship is the way of faith and prayer. Faith, Jesus called for in verse 23, and prayer that he reminds them of in verse 29. Faith and prayer, such simple words. And yet Jesus says that's what counts. And that's what we need in the everyday battle that it is to be a disciple of Jesus in this world and in the workplaces and homes and families and neighborhoods of this world. And you see, faith and prayer are the clue, not because there's some magical power in our faith or in our prayers. That's not the point. The point is that faith and prayer are what connect us to the saving power of God and his sovereignty. Or to quote John Wesley, if I'm allowed to quote a Methodist in a Presbyterian church. But John Wesley put it like this, and I think it's so beautiful. He says, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. I love that. Prayer is the slender nerve. It's just a tiny thing. Prayer is no great value in itself. It's the fact that prayer, like a nerve in our body, is what moves the muscles of God, the muscles of omnipotence, connects us to him. So let's go out into our daily lives in this week with this prayer of this Father on our lips. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief and help us and save us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for Mark. Thank you for Peter who told him this story and remembered these words. And thank you that they come across to us all over the centuries through the scriptures, which again inspire us and teach us, rebuke us and challenge us and encourage us. So send us out, we pray, with that from your word this day. In Jesus' name, amen.